So I think I mentioned in the email that this is Illich's last book, uh, but the first one that I read, and I read it at the recommendation of a, um, a scholar whose opinion I uh, appreciated. And so uh, I first encountered Illich in, in reading in the Vineyard of the Text uh, back around 2011, I guess. Um, and, and I found that already you know, immediately sort of a very striking book. There were things that I were, that I was interested in at that point that Illich, uh, talked about and, and that he took up in this book, uh, things like, uh, memory, the relationship with technology to memory, uh, embodiment and how, um, we experience tools through the body and how it changes our experience of the body. And these are, um, not what Illich directly focuses on here, but they were part of the, the larger argument, the larger historical work uh, and uh, picture that he was he was painting here. So there were already um, things that immediately sort of captured uh, my, my attention. And and I was also, um, what also captured my attention about this book um, and what, what attracted me to, to Illich's work beyond it was that there was a tone that... Um, I'm not sure that I could describe it very precisely, but it was different than the tone of other academic writing that I was reading at the time. And at the time I was in a graduate program, I was doing coursework for my PhD. And so I was reading other uh, work on the history of textuality and the history of the book and that sort of thing. But, but there was something unique I thought about Illich's voice. And I think that what, what I might have detected and what attracted me to, to Illich's work through this book is something that David Cayley identifies in uh, the introduction to Ivan Illich in conversation. So I thought that I might read a little bit of that because it, it does a, a nice job of, of, I think, talking about Illich's work in general, but, but specifically this, this tone that I picked up in this book in the vineyard of the text, which, which also I should say is in, in some respects, Perhaps uh, alongside of limits to medicine, but the the text that uh, comes across as the most traditionally scholarly work that Illich publishes, and it is in fact it's published with the University of Chicago, and I think that is unique among um, Illich's published writings uh, that it that is published with the University Press. I might be wrong about that, but in any case, um, let me read you what. Uh, David Cayley here says about Illich's scholarship, about his approach to, to scholarship. Cayley writes, Illich is an anomaly among modern scholars because he insists that the habits of the heart are as crucial to scholarship as the habits of the head. So he holds together habits of the heart and habits of the head. He calls the cultivation of the organs of inner sense, which root in the heart by its traditional name, assisis, this is a Latin term, and says that it is the indispensable complement to critical habits of mind. And, and then he quotes Illich, for a full millennium, the church cultivated a balanced tradition of study and reflection. The habits of the heart and the cultivation of its virtues are peripherals to the pursuit of higher learning today. So a point of contrast there. Then he says, I want to argue for the possibility of a new complementarity between critical and ascetical learning. I want to reclaim for ascetical theory, method, and discipline a status equal to that the university now assigns to critical and technical disciplines. And so part of what I hear Cayley describing in in Illich's own words, uh, Illich describing as well there, is that it's not enough to just be really smart, uh, in order, you know, to produce good scholarship. It's not sufficient to just be really intelligent, uh, or to have, uh, highly refined critical thinking skills. Um, there's something about temperament. There's some, there's an element of virtue involved. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which the whole person must be involved in the work of scholarship. And that, and that the, what this suggests to me is that the scholarship matters for more than just um, it's intellectual contribution, right? That it gives, uh, the, the scholarship a kind of moral significance as well. So I think that that came across to me, um, without knowing anything else about Illich at that point, it came across to me in this work. 
And so that uh, that seriousness, this is a word that I've sometimes also used, that it had a kind of seriousness that other academic writing I was encountering did not have. And so I would encourage I would encourage you to uh, to pick up in the Vineyard of the Text at some point. It's a lovely book. It's well written, well researched, and, and really fascinating. Unfortunately, it's also out of print. So, uh, regrettably, I think most copies now are, are absurdly priced if you try to find them online. But if you ever find one reasonably priced uh, at a used bookstore, say, uh, snatch it up. Uh, I think it's, it'll be it'll be well worth it. Uh, what I'll do today is I'll try to tell you a little bit about what Village has going on in this book. Um, it is, um, so it, it, it offers itself as a commentary on a much earlier book. And I want to remind you as well from way back in our first couple of weeks where I kind of sketched the trajectory of Village's life and his intellectual interests, um, that we are here at the phase where, and, and it's evident that this is a very different kind of book than say Tools for Conviviality, uh, or uh, Energy and Equity or, or Deschooling Society or, or Medical Nemesis. Um, all of which come out of the 70s, uh, in a sense, in the, in the uh, you know, text I've selected for this class, we've skipped from, you know, limits uh, to medicine, written in the 70s, revised later, um, to In the Vineyard, which is uh, published in 1993. So we've kind of skipped over a significant portion of a religious corpus of, of writing and, and an important transition in his sort of intellectual journey, work like um, uh, shadow work and... Um, uh, H2O and the Waters of Forgetfulness. There, there are these books that come out of the 80s that I think are also very valuable. But in any case, uh, we are at the stage in Illich's intellectual development and journey where he has felt, he has come to see that the critique of institutions that he offered in the late 60s and early 70s, um, failed to be compelling and, and failed to shift public sentiment, say, uh, in part, uh, because Illich, I think, came to see that he wasn't uh, really hitting at the root of things. There were some deeper issues going on that his critique of institutions missed on, even though I would say his critique of institutions was um, ran much deeper than uh, some of the usual criticisms that we get of, of industrial society. But in any case, he wanted to understand what the certainties were that were uh, that were underlying, providing the foundation, kind of intellectual foundation for um, these institutions and the way they were viewed in, in, in modern society. And so he sets off in search of uh, understanding what these, these presuppositions are, these underlying assumptions might be. Um, he begins to ask questions about how we perceive, how we perceive the body and experience the body, uh, how our senses operate in, in the modern world or fail to operate, maybe as the case may be. And he becomes interested in what uh, comes generally is referred to as sort of media ecology, right? So this is a, um, a school of thought or, or critical school that is sort of a, uh, that's associated with people like Marshall McLuhan and Walter Ong and Eric Havelock. Uh, and in, in this particular book, Walter Ong, for example, is cited repeatedly. I think McLuhan might be cited a time or two. Uh, but, but there's an interest in trying to understand the way in which media shape our thinking, our perceiving, our framing of the world. Because I think he, he, he now kind of comes to understand that it's at this level, you know, it's not even the level of, of our expressed thoughts, but the level of the stuff with which our thoughts get expressed and formalized that Illich wants to sort of locate uh, the most critical issues that we need to understand. And so in the vineyard of the text is a commentary on a 12th century book uh, by Hugh of St. Victor. Hugh of St. Victor uh, is a pretty notable figure in the class I'm leading um, on Dante, for example. We, we just encountered him in Paradiso. He is, I think, in the, um, in the sphere of the sun, along with other notable theologians of, of the Christian church. And so he's, he's an important um, figure that is well-regarded and, and maybe doesn't have quite the... Um, the name recognition of a, of a Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas or St. Bonaventure, but he is nonetheless an important figure. And he writes a, uh, a work that has come to be known as a didascalicon uh, that offers itself as a sort of guide to learning, a guide, we might even say, to, to reading. Illich calls it the first guide to reading. Um, it, it, you know, there are much later instances of this. Um, one thinks of the famous uh, How to Read a Book by... Uh, the two authors whose name, of course, right now is escaping me, um, but you may know the book I'm talking about. 
But um, in any case, this is a, a medieval text out of the 12th century, the 1100s. And uh, this collection of essays in, in the vineyard of the text unpacks that particular text. And, and it, there's a very specific strategy that Illich is pursuing. So he has come to see already at this point that there, there was a, um, a fundamental shift that began to happen in the Western world in the 12th century. Now, I think that more recently, I think more scholars would sort of agree and concur with this. Uh, but in a sense, it, it still is a kind of minority opinion. So we tend to think that the real transition to what we think of as the modern world doesn't really get going until the Renaissance and maybe not even until after the Reformation. And in these sort of grand stories of, of the Western world, it's usually around 1600 that people will say this is the beginning, you know, with some arbitrariness involved here of the modern world. But, but Illich would have us locate the origins of the modern world, the seeds of the modern world much earlier, uh, in the 12th century. And there's good reason for doing that. And, and this becomes part of that, of that argument. But in any case, um, Illich sees this as a hinge moment in Western history where we, we are moving from one sort of intellectual universe into another. And he, he thinks that he lives through this watershed, this, this trans, period of transition. Uh, and so that he offers us this unique window into a world that is fading away and one that is just beginning to emerge and that in Hugh and Hugh's work, um, we, we can see both of these sort of being held uh, in a kind of fruitful tension. Now, the reason Illich thinks that's important, well, let me say two things about this. One, even before any of this development in his own thinking had, had transpired, Illich had already uh, made himself a student of the 12th century. Uh, he, and, and particularly of Hugh of St. Victor, whom he often uh, calls his friend. Uh, it's, he's, it's a dead, he's a, he's a dead friend, but he is nonetheless a friend for Illich, right? There's a, he has a living significance in Illich's life. And, um, and Illich immersed himself in the literature of this period, and he was deeply familiar with it um, and with its sources. And so uh, that had been, as he says in this, uh, in the introduction to um, Vineyard, this period of history had already been an area of, of interest for him uh, for nearly 40 years. And so he was sort of steeped in this period. And so, it, and it happens that um, he, he comes to see it as a, as a moment of profound transition and, and rightly so. Um, and so he, he already had this deep familiarity with the period. So that's one thing worth mentioning, but also it, it's important, not just because he had a kind of affection for it, but because he came to think that we ourselves were living through a similar moment, right? And so for him, the, the age of instrumentality, the age in which we conceive of, uh, of technology as an instrument begins around the time of Hugh. He credits Hugh, uh, and, and I think that, um, this is a, a defensible position. He credits Hugh with being the first one to sort of theorize technology. As, as a kind of discrete realm of human activity. Um, and so, and, and technology tools conceived of in, in a particular way, in a certain way. Uh, as Illich knows, for example, in um, uh, his, the argument that he lays out for, for David Cayley and Rupert Norris in the future, uh, prior to this, the, the language for technology uh, failed to distinguish between the person and the tool. They were seen as just being, you know, the, the hammer's extension of the hand. Uh, it hardly, it doesn't quite appear as a distinct thing. Then we get this language of instrument, of instrumentality, uh, where the tool is conceived of as a separate object that can be deployed for various purposes, a means that can be cultivated, mastered. And then Illich later on in, comes to see, and he, he, he would say that in writing tools for conviviality, he is still thinking of, of tools and institutions in this way as instruments. And then part of the failure of that project, he himself would, would say, is that he had failed to see that we had begun to transition into an age of systems, not just of tools, but of systems. And the difference being is that, that I can, I can hold the, the, the instrument in hand in such a way that I can master it, right? It remains separate from me. The system incorporates me. Um, there, the, the, line of the boundary, as it were, between the technological system 
And the user is much more permeable than is the line between the tool or the instrument and the user. And so this puts us in a, in a totally different plane uh, with regards to how we relate to these, to these, to systems as opposed to instruments. And so, um, this era that spans Hughes time to our own uh, is, is a discrete unit in, uh, in Illich's thinking. And so we presently, Illich would say, are experiencing a moment of transition and we are in a position analogous to Hugh. That is to say that an old world is passing and the new one is, is taking shape, but has not yet solidified. Um, there's a wonderful line that I quote all the time uh, by um, the, the Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, and um, it, it, it captures this very same uh, sense, right? The, the, uh, the old is dying and the new cannot be, cannot yet be born. Um, and so he goes on to say, so we live in this era of, um, how is it often translated of monstrosities? Um, in any case, this is the sentiment, right? That we're stuck in this sort of liminal space where something old is going away, but something new has not yet taken shape. Now, Illich, um, who in many respects is read as a very pessimistic critic, nonetheless says this is a moment of opportunity, right? Because new certain old certainties are being shaken and dis- disrupted and um, questioned in ways that they aren't when the the worldview is sort of intact and and operating um, at at its at its peak. So the worldview is sort of being shaken, which means that these old certainties are fading. And the new certainties haven't quite solidified. And so there's this kind of flexibility that we, that characterizes the era that we inhabit. Now, you know, from one perspective, this is kind of destabilizing. It's uncomfortable. It's, um, you know, we part, part of, I think our trouble, um, in the public sphere, or even as we try to make sense of it, is that we've lost old metaphors and old symbols that used to work to make sense of reality for us. And so there's something kind of disorienting about being alive in a period like this. Um, but simultaneously, you know, Illich is right. It is also potentially a period of opportunity uh, because of this more, more um, uh, kind of flexible, malleable nature of uh, the world that we are inhabiting. And so he wants then to, with that sort of large picture of how Illich sort of sees, uh, you know, the present and its relationship to the 12th century, he wants to offer us uh, this, this commentary on Hugh's work as, as a kind of pattern for how we might think about the present. So let me read you a couple of excerpts from the introduction that kind of give you this sense of what Illich is trying to do with this. He says, and these are in the, the hand that I just gave you, but of course you can just sort of listen to me read them. Um, he says, I concentrate my attention on a fleeting but very important moment in the history of the alphabet when, after centuries of Christian reading, the page was suddenly transformed from a score for pious mumblers into an optically organized text for logical thinkers. After this date, a new kind of classical reading became the dominant metaphor for the highest form of social activity. Now, um, that's an incredibly dense sentence, right? I feel like I probably ought to unpack every other word in that. Um, so but he, what he's saying is that I'm looking at this fleeting moment, right? Because in the history of the alphabet, now even, even that, right, I think is, is worth uh, commenting on. And I, I want to do my best to kind of not take for granted uh, some of the things that, that um, you know, because this is sort of the thought world I've been immersed in that, you know, I don't want some others to take it for granted, right? But the idea that the alphabet has a history, the idea the, that the alphabet is a technology, uh, the reminder, because I think we all sort of know this, but it's not something that we often think very carefully about, that, that writing isn't just a natural part of human existence, right? That it came to being at a particular moment, and that it radically altered the way we think, uh, how we think. It altered human society. It, uh, as Walter Ong uh, puts it, right, it, it ushered in a new form of consciousness. It restructured, is his word, it restructured consciousness, that, that the introduction of writing was this profound um, moment in human history. And that it happened 
all things considered, relatively recently in human history. And that then it, it, it goes on to have a history itself, right? So, you know, it had there, we might think of it as in today's lingo, right? Writing, beta writing, writing 1.0, writing 2.0, et cetera, these various instantiations of the thing that we call writing. So if you visit Italy and you are in Rome and you're looking at all the kind of uh, Greco-Roman, ar- the, the, the classical Roman architecture, and you're looking at the, the, the writing on um, the, uh, the, you know, the different basilicas, the churches, or, or old um, uh, government buildings, what you see is, first of all, Latin text, but then you also see all capitals and and all strung together, right? Unless you knew Latin, you wouldn't necessarily be able to say where one word ended and the other finished, right? This is one kind of um, apparent illustration, one very evident illustration of um, the kind of evolution that I'm describing, right? That, that it, it took centuries before it occurred to somebody to separate words, right? Something that we take absolutely for granted. Uh, it took centuries after the invention of writing for people to say, well, maybe it'd be a good idea if we separated these things out, right? And to distinguish uh, what we think of as um, uppercase from lowercase letters, to punctuate, uh, to use paragraphs, uh, to, you know, break up the text. Um, these are the kinds of innovations that shape the alphabet, the, the deployment of the alphabet over the course of millennia. And, and so what Illich is saying is I'm going to look at this very um, uh, crucial moment in that history where a number of different technological developments, and we don't think of them as technological because, it's sort of, because they're not devices and they're not electronic, right? But they are innovations in the technology of writing. Um, and how at this moment they appear and they reshape again, just like the introduction of writing itself reshaped consciousness and society. So these innovations in alphabetic technology reshape our sort of mental architecture, how we think about and what we think about and, and how we organize, um, the production of culture and, and even how we organize society itself. And all of this happens in Illich's view beginning in the 12th century. Uh, and preceding, again, preceding the Renaissance, preceding the Reformation, and laying the groundwork for what we think of as the modern world. And so the history of the alphabet, it is a thing, right? Now, what he calls here centuries of Christian reading, I'll unpack this a little bit more as we go along, but he he will distinguish the break that he sees happening here in the 12th century as the break between what he calls monastic reading and then scholastic reading. There are two very different forms of reading. Uh, that are shaped by the underlying technologies of the book or of the alphabet, uh, and they have different aims. They shape different kinds of people, and and that transition happens in in Hugh's lifetime. Um, and then we'll I'll talk in a, in a little bit about well I'll just briefly sketch why he says that it is, the page is transformed from a score, as in a score of music. Right, so if you're a musician, you have a score, you can sort of uh, play the music for yourself a score for pious mumblers into an optically organized text for logical thinkers, right? So again, it's, it's so hard. And this is why Illich's project is so so important and and others um, who do the same kind of work to, to remind us that the things we take for granted are not um, eternal fixtures of the universe, right? That there, there are ways of thinking that are a direct product of cultural and technological innovations. And, and again, in the larger, larger picture, what Illich is saying, we need to understand what those certainties are, those modes of thinking and perceiving in order to understand our moment um, and how better to approach it. And so this takes a deep unpacking of things that we never even think to question. And, and again, one of those is how we think of what we think we're doing when we're reading, um, something that in Western history was a, a fundamentally foundational uh, practice. And it goes from being a score into a, an, op, an optically organized text. The, the, the emergence of, the, of something we call a text from the page is something that happens at this point. But again, we must, to understand this, we have to remember that writing, that orality precedes literacy. Right, that the spoken word 
the sounded word precedes the written word. Uh, and again, it's not as if we have to put ourselves in a wholly different universe. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's almost impossible for us to think of, like, if I, if I say, think of a word, right? You will almost inevitably, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, think of letters that will form a word, right? But there, there was a reason why there was no word for word in preliterate societies, uh, because th- there wasn't, you couldn't picture a word as a series of letters before those letters were invented, right? So all speech was effervescent. It, you couldn't capture it, right? Um, whenever you have a thought and you say, oh, let me write that down before I forget, or maybe, you know, let me record it before I forget or whatever we do now. But the idea that you can capture thinking in that way, that you could hold human utterance in place, freeze it, as it were, for later recollection. Those are, those are innovations that are only possible because of writing, right? So all of societies before them were oral. The word was, uh, it was not a thing. It was an event. Um, when I talk in Christian contexts, I say, you know, I give the example of, uh, this is why we are mystified when Isaac, uh, can't simply take back the blessing he gives by accident or, you know, having been deceived by, by Jacob. And Jacob said, or excuse me, Esau says, well, can't, you know, can't you just undo it or take it back? And he says, no, right? It's done. It's an event because it's, the word isn't conceived of as a thing. I think a lot of our present, um, rethinking of, of issues of freedom of speech in digital platforms arises out of a, a reanimation of the word where the word is not just this inert scribble on, on a page. You know, this is the only context in which we could say that uh, sticks and stones might break my bones, words will never hurt me, um, which arises, I think, out of a print sensibility um, into a new world where, where words are, in fact, much more active and dynamic and thus more threatening. Um, so in any case, what I'm trying to paint here is this idea that um, language is grounded in orality. And so the first people who kind of play with writing, as it were, right, they kind of think of writing, they think of it as a score for sounding words out, which is, of course, how we learn it, right? If we learn phonetically, this is how we learn it. But then we sort of forget that that's what it, that it is we're doing. And again, we're speaking, I've been using the word writing. We're actually speaking of a very particular form of writing that be- ends up becoming the dominant form of writing. And that is writing as uh, a- a- alphabetic writing, where instead of trying to capture words with symbols ideogrammatically or or with signs, you know, think of hieroglyphs or even think of, 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 of Chinese writing, you are instead using 26 simple symbols to encode all of the possible sounds in your language. And, and so you don't need to master 10,000 characters. You master 26. And when you master those, all you're doing is sounding out you're, it's a it's a it's a score, right? If you think of it again, of that of that comparison, and so it's grounded in this audible world. Um, think of in the Confessions how uh, remark uh, remarkable it is for Augustine, Saint Augustine, to stumble upon Saint Ambrose reading silently. Right? This is like a, he calls his friends and he says, "Look at this! Look at the sky!" Right? He's, just, he's reading, but no sound is coming out. And this was, you know, really through the period that Illich was writing about, an unusual thing. Uh, instead, writing, reading was sounding. And this is why, for example, the monks were called pious mumblers. Because if you entered a, if you enter a modern library, back when people used to use libraries for books, you would have had silence, absolute silence, right? Um, in fact, that's the, the most common caricature of the librarian, right? It's, it's silent. You enter uh, a, a monastic scriptorium and you would not have heard silence. You would have heard this sort of murmuring sound that uh, was arising from all of the monks as they are copying, mumbling to themselves what it is that they are reading. They're vocalizing uh, what they're reading. And so how does that shift and and how does the, the the text emerge from the page as a distinct thing this is the subject of Illich's book um now another interesting 
aspect of this is that he sees a parallel development happening. So I'm going to, let me see here, where do I have this? Um, I'm going to skip a couple of quotes if you're kind of following me, but I'm going to drop down a couple. And he says, I'm not suggesting that the quote unquote modern self is born in the 12th century, nor that the self which here emerges does not have a long ancestry. But you can tell that even in that formulation, it's almost as if there's but. We today think of each other as people with frontiers, right? I end here and you start there. Our personalities are as detached from each other as our bodies. Existence in an inner distance from community, of the individual distance from community, which the pilgrim who set out to Santiago or the pupil who studied the Didascalicon had to discover on their own is for us a social reality, something so obvious that we would not think of wishing it away. In other words, what he is seeing here is that there is an emergence of a kind of experience of the self that is anchored to or parallel to the emergence of the text from the page as a distinct abstract thing that is, as it were, disembodied. As far as the the distinction of the text from the page, um, I I found it useful for for us modern readers to kind of try to understand this, to think of what has happened, I think, in most of our lifetimes, but maybe not for... Um, some of the younger of you on the screen. Uh, so, you know, I grew up with uh, photographs that were 35 millimeter film, right? If I went to a theme park, I took a camera, maybe six rolls of film that maybe gave me, I don't know, you know, six times 20 something um, pictures. So that was it. I was limited, right? And the photograph came out. And of course, uh, I couldn't see it at the moment. I had to take it to um, a place where it'd be developed. And then I would receive it back. Uh, and, and I would have it as a thing or as a photograph that I can hold in my hand, right? So the, the, there was no thing, no such thing as an image. There was only a photograph, right? Now today we have images and images like text. So what I'm drawing here is a, an analogy between page and text as Illich sort of traces that relationship, uh, and photograph and image. In other words, an abstraction happens where something gets separated from its physical embodiment. The text gets separated from the page. The image gets separated from the photograph. So we today, if I take a picture on my phone, it would be a very bad picture because my phone is one of these things. But nonetheless, um, it, it would it would live there. But then I could send it to somebody and it might show up in their messenger. And I can upload it to Twitter and it would live there. Or I could maybe... I'm feeling sort of nostalgic, printed out and could live in that form. Um, in other words, the, the image kind of switches. It's, a, it's an abstraction. It doesn't have a particular embodiment. It can be multiply embodied um, in various contexts. And that is a different sort of thing than the photograph. Um, in uh, Roland Barthes' uh, famous book about photography, uh, Camera Lucida, he, he uses several sort of iconic photographs as examples. He's writing the 1950s, 60s. Uh, but he, he says, I will, I'm not including a photograph of my mother. He had one, right? Imagine having only one photograph for one thing of, of, of a loved one, right? Um, and he only had one. And for him, it was too private a thing to include in the book. And so he references it, but he doesn't include it as one of, of the things that the reader can see, right? That kind of relationship to a photograph is absolutely impossible today, right? Because for one thing, you know, we, we have, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just for my, my wife can show you literally thousands of pictures of my children from the, you know, from the, their short lifespan, right? And, and in fact, they become so plenteous that we rarely ever go back to look at them, right? And <laughs> we have lost, their, their value has decreased. And it's a classic sort of law of, you know, the more you have something, the less it, it becomes meaningful, right? Um, in any case, the the emergence of the text from the page happens in this way, right? So in in the monastic form of reading, the page itself, the book, is a rare object, a relatively rare object. Um, it is it is physically distinct, right? You don't have a run of a thousand. You know, editions of the book that's being run off by, by the printing press. That's yet still in the future. Um, it exists as this very distinct object with a history layered over time. You know, as one 
particular monk may sort of comment on the margins of it, and then that gets passed on, and another monk will kind of fill in some more comments around the monk. So it, it, it accretes a sort of social history as a very distinct, has an aura, you know, in kind of the Walter Benjamin sort of sense. Um, and that, that you, you can't think of the text as something separate from that. It is the book. It is the page. And so when you encounter the book, it, you, you are not manipulating it. It is reading you. Now there's a lot of detail that Illich kind of adds to this, right? There's this way even of seeing which is radically different for, from how we conceive of seeing. Um, I just kind of uh, led a little group on a discussion of an article that Illich writes about sort of the history of sight and how um, classically and through the medieval period, sight was not a matter of light coming into your eyes, but rather of a beam emanating from your eyes and making contact either with the surface of the thing seen or in some kind of halfway point where the, there is something emanating from the object, the emanation from your eye meet, and there's where vision happens. Now, that obviously is a kind of absurdly different way of thinking about seeing as what we think of we do when we're seeing, but it, it was involved in this reading process as well. It goes to the idea of the illuminated manuscript um, and the difference between medieval painting and Renaissance painting where what we think optically is happening is very different. The book gives off a light. The book gives off its significance. It, it, it reaches out to us, and we have to relate to it in a certain way in order to perceive it and to encounter it and to, and to most importantly, garner its wisdom, uh, which is how Hugh of St. Victor begins uh, the Didascalicon. It is a book about how to read toward the end of growing wise. And here in the middle of this first page, as I say, the wisdom Hugh seeks is Christ himself. Learning and specifically reading are both simply forms of a search for Christ. The reader is one who has made himself into an exile in order to concentrate his entire attention and desire on wisdom, which thus becomes the hoped for home. And so the text becomes a kind of... um, it's, it's an it's an exile without leaving your home, which is happening, or a journey or a pilgrimage without leaving your home, which is going on at the same time as a very many literal pilgrimages are going on. This is the age of the Crusades. You go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's the age of the of the religious pilgrimage that has no necessarily uh, crusading function. So, hence the reference to Santiago de Compostela, where which was a, um, a very famous medieval pilgrimage route that ended in Spain, uh, where the body of, of St. James was held, Santiago's uh, James in, in Spanish. Um, and so you you have this era where the individual that goes on a journey, to de- in a way detaching himself from his community, begins to develop a sense of self, uh, a sense of the self distinct from the community. Um, it's, I think, in, in Rivers North of the Future, Illich puts it this way, uh, it is a matter of n- us coming to understand ourselves not as a an I that is an expression of a we, but rather as a an I that may occasionally form into a we, right? The the plural pronoun and the singular pronoun, right? And in the modern West, we are primarily I's that occasionally see ourselves as belonging always ideally voluntarily to some we that is just a provisional formation, right? And and instead, of course, in pre-modern times, we, we understood ourselves as we's that occasionally, you know, as eyes that were in, integrated into a we. But that begins to, to kind of break down a little bit, Illich is saying here, in this period, as the eye sets off, it sets off on pilgrimage, it sets off on crusade, or it sets off on what Hugh kind of characterizes as an intellectual journey through the pages of the text so that the self can be discovered in this way. And in this, this is one of the ways Illich says that that Hugh straddles these two periods and that he himself, uh, as he, you know, Illich puts it, is a very sensitive soul, is aware of these transitions and is trying to negotiate uh, the most humane possible transition to the new world. So there's this relationship between the self 
and writing, a particular form of reading, I should say, um, and a larger sort of ethos of that moment that all are working in tandem uh, to uh, certainly generate an, a new experience of the self, even if it is not quite the modern self as, as we come to understand it. Uh, and so this is another sort of fascinating aspect of, of this book. I want to, um, I should pause at some point to take your questions. I've been sort of going on and on here um, at a quite rapid rate, I realize. Um, but let me just come to the close here. And um, and then I can certainly, if you've got things that have been kicking around your head, uh, we can we can talk about these. Um, but what what does this for Illich? Is that are these very simple to us? We think of those very simple innovations. Um, the, the the ordering of a well, let me do it this way. So most of us maybe here are sort of used to um, the, the the Bible or our sacred text plays a very important role in our lives, right? And imagine. So I will I'll invite you to imagine entering a, a reading of the Bible where. Uh, there were, for one thing, no verse numbers, um, where, where there were no chapter numbers, uh, where there were no paragraph divisions, uh, where there were no page numbers on the actual pages, right? Where there was no, uh, index at the back where you could look up a keywords and find where they were, um, where you, you at best had book titles, right? So you would know when you're in the book of Isaiah or you would know when you're in the book of uh, the gospel of Matthew. But beyond that, the text is just sort of jumbled together on the page. And so there's no way of navigating it in, a, in, in the way we think of as a, sort of a, um, a search and find kind of way, right? A random access mode of, of engaging with the text. You entered into it. Right, you navigated it almost as a as a as a pilgrim making his way through uh, a terrain that you would become fam- you would become familiar with it only by a very dedicated immersive engagement. Um, and then you might occasionally have these really weird looking drawings on the page, which were aids to memory. Right, so you would sort of look for this very interesting flowering pattern or this grotesque sort of demon image appearing on the page. And these would sort of be one of the ways you might navigate the text. But otherwise, you couldn't navigate it in a random access sort of way. Now, in this century that Illich is looking at, you get all of these slight tweaks to the alphabetic technology, the introduction of paragraph breaks, the separation of words, the introduction of alphabetical indexes. I mean, even think Illich goes on to, to point out how radical a thing that is. He, he notes that there's a passage in, in the work of Albert the Great where he, he it's a, um, uh, oh, what's it called? It's, it's a bestiary, right? So it's a collection of different kinds of animals and little descriptions of the animals, et cetera, et cetera. It's the sort of thing that, you know, is very common in the Middle Ages. But Albert organizes it alphabetically. And this is, this is such a break with tradition and, and assumptions that he has to sort of explain rather sheepishly why he's doing it. And he has, he says something like this. He says, um, I realize that I ought to organize these according to the virtues that the animals symbolize. So the lion for courage, for example, and that that's the better way of doing it, right? You know, that's the way I ought to do it. But for, for ease of access, he doesn't quite use that phrase, but essentially is what he's saying. For ease of access, please bear with me as I organize it alphabetically, right? And, and this is a, a new thing he's doing. And, and, and it's only possible because of the alphabet where you can order things by the first letter of the word that we use to write out what the thing is. And so there, there are all of these techniques, the index is born, the table of contents is born in this period. All these things make it possible to engage with the text in a radically different way. Right, the mode of, of random access, where we're not engaging with something whole and integral, but something that has bits and pieces of it. Our relationship, almost, I'm tempted to say, becomes you know, the, the, you know, we we begin to think of ourselves as users, right, users of the text, rather than uh, disciples that submit to it, that find a unique wisdom in it, only if we're able to conform ourselves to it, to its shape. Now we approach it in this more scholastic vein. It may still be a very serious thing, 
uh, we, 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 we approach it with a very different kind of attitude. And again, that distance, that, that, that foregrounding of the self and backgrounding of the sacred text, or, or not even the sacred text as in Holy Scripture, but texts that are venerated because of, of the wisdom that they bury, that, that also contributes, I think, to this development of the self that sees itself as, as to the master of the relationship, right? Um, rather than as the, the humble, um, you know, student that brings himself to the text in order to discover himself, to be told who he is by the text or who she is. Um, and so these are the technologies that Illich is developing in this moment. And, um, and so what he is saying is a lot of the stuff that usually gets attributed to print later on, um, by people like Marshall McLuhan and Elizabeth Eisenstein, uh, can actually be root, you know, first begin to, uh, to, to pop up in these earlier textual developments, even prior to the mechanization of the word in printing. So, um, this is, this is a lovely book again, because it, it does so many things for us. It gives, it gives us this picture into this very foreign thought world. It teaches us about these, again, very foreign ways of relating to the text. Um, it gives us this image of, of a way of, of approaching text and pursuing knowledge that is grounded in a desire for wisdom that is very different from how we conceive of the intellectual life today. And I think it does help us create this pattern. So, so it was really out of this pattern that Illich gives us that I began to think of digital, you know, photography as, as a, as a distinct thing and about how we relate to the digital image being very different than how we relate to the photograph. I, 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 you know, kind of arrived at that chiefly by just taking what Illich tells us about the 12th century and in terms of text and saying, Oh, here's an interesting pattern. Let me see if I can reapply that to what is happening today. I'll say the same thing is true for film, for example. We, we relate to film in a very different way today than, than the moviegoer who sits in front of the, you know, the movie as a kind of almost ritualistic, um, event in the theater. Um, you know, we, we mine movies for memes. Right? We are, I think Illich is, you know, very right in saying that we are now living, I don't think I got to this part where he says the book has now ceased to be the root metaphor of the age. The screen has taken its place. This is 1993. The alphabetic text has become but one of many modes of encoding something now called, he puts it in quotes, the message. Right? But anyway, I think we can, we can see this kind of development happening in a lot of different ways. Um, I began to think about this back when Google Photo was first a thing, probably like six, seven years ago, um, and the access that it promised for our you know, massive databases of images. Um, and it, I saw that as sort of being parallel to what the index was for words, right, or what the table of contents was, right? We're, we've built up these archives and we're learning new ways of manipulating and accessing them, but then that also is um, reshaping how we relate to the thing itself. Okay, I'm going to stop. Um, that was my best effort to encapsulate this book for you in, in 50 minutes. Um, so, well, I hope that I've been you know, best. I hope I have maybe made you think, oh, that's not interesting. Maybe I should find that. But in any case, you all have any questions or comments or any observations, uh, anything at all. Um, and thank you for being patient and listening. Yeah. One one thing is I've thought about this, what, what you're saying, but also, I mean, I've thought about similar things in terms of liturgy. Um, I grew up in like kind of a Reformed Baptist, really low liturgical church. I mean, I love the church, but it's just like I, I can kind of feel, especially as you lay this out, what Illich is looking at and explaining, like how different it is that I view the Bible, where it's like right 94. Over 95% of the time when I look at the Bible, I'm reading it in my head. Um, and yeah, just thinking about not even under, thinking that, oh, this forms me in a certain way. Um, or this changes how I see the Bible. Like, and I was also wondering if he talks about that more in terms of how like we see the word of God and, or if there's like more history there in terms of especially how the Israelites would they like read it out loud like you know would this would that the same um, relationship to the text to the page sorry 
Yeah, I muted myself because I got the beeping going off outside my window again. But um, no, it's a great question, and I, I don't think Illich, you know, gives us a sort of a history of how the you know scripture has been understood. But he gives us materials to work with, and and again, Illich here is is you know sort of embedding himself in a, in this media ecological tradition where a lot of the people working in tradition would have something to say about it. But yes, absolutely, right. Um, it, the way that scripture would have been encountered, um, really throughout the majority of church history up until. And, and really before that Judaic history, you know, the, or the history of the Jewish people, Jewish reading, um, would have been audibly. You would have gathered to hear it, right? We, we see this in the Gospels themselves when uh, Jesus enters the synagogue and picks up the, the scroll of Isaiah and unscrolls it and reads and everybody is there sort of listening. You know, the synagogue would have a, a reader, you know, an officiant that was a reader of the text. Um, you know, there are carryovers, carryovers of this in our own services where we have moments of scripture reading, right? But that, that would have been the typical way in which the text of scripture would be sort of encountered. Um, and then, you know, Illich uses the term the age of lay literacy uh, to characterize the 12th century and onward, where literacy becomes to be more sort of widely dispersed, right? And, and of course, you also have uh, developments in the affordability of the, of the text and the developments in the actual technology of, of binding and then later printing. Uh, that and and paper becoming affordable, right? These are all sort of very boring, arcane, um, you know, sort of techno-economic developments uh, that have to do with trade routes and raw materials. But you know, there there's a history of the book just becoming cheaper, essentially, uh, and more affordable, so people can have it, and then so literacy becomes more widespread. Um, you know, Illich says before we we reach a kind of critical mass of literacy, but already the book has become sort of the root metaphor of the age. But in any case, yes, I would say that. You know, hearing scripture read, the, the Protestantism is, is print in a sense. I want to say, I mean, I, I say that very, you know, I, I, I say that kind of meaning to be provocatively, but it's also why I sometimes say Protestantism is dead because we've moved beyond the age of print. Your, your, your Protestant church would be unrecognizable, I suspect, to, you know, one of our Puritan forebears. Um, they have a very different relationship to the text than we do. And so we live in the, the you know, I, we, what we would do to extend this technology is to pass it through radio and television, the age of the television preacher, right? Um, and now, of course, to, you know, Zoom church and the Bible app. And in each case, we have, we have, we think what we're doing is just the same thing in a new way. But that's already because we've kind of been conditioned to think of the text as this floating thing that just kind of gets differently instantiated without recognizing that the form that it takes, the body that it takes, alters our relationship to it, how we conceive of it, how we relate to it, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the random access app, uh, or maybe the app that kind of floats you a little text, you know, a day or whatever, uh, is a, and that also kind of gives you, you know, 50 language or interpretations to choose from is a very different thing then, you know, your grandfather's well-worn Bible that he carried around with him for his whole life that has, you know, the history of all the baptisms in the family going back, you know, five generations. And that itself is a very different thing uh, from the book that just lived in the church that you saw maybe once a week. Uh, and, and a different thing still from, um, you know, your encounter being you know, mediated strictly by, by orality. So the answer is yes. And I think it's up uh, to us to some degree to sort of figure out, well, what difference do these things make? Um, but difference they make is, is, I suppose, the point. Yeah. Was there a time, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, between Plato and Aristotle, Plato did not want to have his uh, philosophical ruminations written down, but Aristotle uh, his student did it went ahead and and had them written down. I wondered what the reluctance was on the part of that. I, I may have the wrong uh, philosophers in mind, but um, it, it, I wonder if Plato was worried about seeing his text on the page and not being spoken with all of the the yeah. uh, inflections and earnestness that a, a rhetorician might deliver. Right. Absolutely. So I think that the, maybe the distinction is Socrates and Plato. Um, okay. Plato, Plato writes his dialogues. Now the thing is, is that Plato is pretending that he doesn't like to do that. And I'm maybe pretending I'm being facetious, right? Um, but, but in the Phaedrus, uh, one of Plato's most famous dialogues, he has this whole discussion where, you know, it's, he puts it in the form of a myth and it's, you know, the, uh, the, the god, the Egyptian god who invents writing, brings it before the Egyptian king, uh, uh, Thuth and Theus, I always forget who, which is which. 
Um, and the God is saying, isn't this a wonderful thing? And the king says, well, actually, um, you know, this is going to undermine my people's ability to remember, to recall. This is a living, you've taken the living word and made it dead and inert. And this is all sort of reflecting Plato's own view of things. And that's why he writes dialogues, right? Plato doesn't write um, treatises. He writes dialogues which imitate the oral mode. And, and Plato has a very, you know, sort of unique way of thinking about what memory is, why it matters. And, and he's, you know, has this dialogical view of, um, of truth that it arises in the give and take, the dialectic of the conversation, and that, which is a living thing. And, um, text replicates none of that. So, I mean, yes, if that, I mean, I think that's sort of generally what your, your thing is. So that Plato is one of these hinge figures too, I would say. Right. He's living in that moment where in Greek culture and society, it's like, oh, writing. Ooh, this is interesting. Right. It's sort of changing, radically altering how we do things here. Right. Prior to that, it's Homer. Right. And Homer is, is all oral. It's all spoken. Uh, the Homeric traditions are, are, are grounded in an oral life world. Uh, whereas what we think of as Greek philosophy is grounded in a literate life world with different issues, different ways of conceiving, right? The idea of justice. So in the vineyard, um, actually, no, maybe in somewhere else, but he talks about how, you know, Plato wants to know what justice is in the abstract as a concept, which can be conceptualized because now we have this label, we give it to it with these letters instead of it being a, a mode of life, something that is just simply embodied, right? So it's a very, even a different way of thinking about ethics and the moral life and, um, and the problem, new questions arise, new kinds of problems materialize because of the introduction of writing. Um, and, and like I said, Plato is on the hinge of that. Eric Havelock's book, Preface to Plato, explores all the ways in which Plato's philosophy and thinking is shaped precisely by the introduction of writing into Greek society. Um, any other, th- we're, we're over time, so feel free at any moment to just sort of wave, do the zoom wave and, 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 um, Carry on with your your lives, especially you, Michael, who seems to be in such a lovely <laughs> outdoor setting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. lovely. Any, any other thoughts or comments? This is yeah. fascinating stuff, as you can tell. But yeah, go ahead, David. So part of me is just in awe that oh my goodness, this is a part of ourselves that, and I'm trying to ask myself how we lost something or gained something, and we've definitely lost something, and we've definitely gained something. But I don't know which is better and which is worse. Um, <laughs> But uh, and part of me wants to cry inside because, like, oh my goodness, what our ancestors were like. This is what we don't know. That's why we like. Could this be why we feel so different from them? We well, yeah, yeah. and why we even call that archaic? Yeah. Um, but something that I can contribute is that. So I'm curious to think of this in terms of another culture, East Asian cultures, particularly Chinese, where they it's been noted that when they form an argument, they don't do it in this organized way that we do in the West, at least not traditionally, um, where we will make paragraphs and here's my first point and here's my next point and my follow points to directly point you to the conclusion. And it all comes to that. And instead of what they do, they take the characters and they just talk about the subject. And so they're not specifically getting at a conclusion, but the whole idea is that by we say this thing about it and we say this thing about it and we say another thing about it. And by reading the entirety of what's written, you get the, you get the message, you get the idea of what's being argued. And then they, with their characters, when they, if they will use them artistically too, whereas we have to put them in an organized way, they can take their characters and just have them kind of floating around or they can, they have this special, um, two by four structure of characters where you can put someone's name in it and it means something about that person, like in conjunction with the rest of the characters there. Right. So I just, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, that's all exactly true, right? It, it, it all reflects the, the, the tremendous difference that the different technologies for organizing speech and thought uh, have in shaping speech. They're not just conduits of speech and thought. They shape speech and thought. Um, yeah, so that that's all that is very good. Yeah. Mm, um, it, makes, it makes me think in Chinese also that like, you know, if you know how to write it, it doesn't actually help you 
know how to say it because you know there's actually a separation between the the characters and how to say something and also all the different dialects in Chinese. Um, although it's funny because the characters, you could understand the meaning of it without understanding how to say it because they're like, oh, this like you know like this looks like fire or this is yeah. like stuff like that. Yeah. And, and again, I, you know, this is a sort of thing I think where once you begin to kind of see these dynamics, then I think you begin to see them more and more, right? And, and the implications of them become increasingly apparent. Um, and, uh, you know, it all in a sense kind of boils down to the little quixotic line from McLuhan, right? The medium is the message. That is, you know, the, the, the stuff that carries thought is a neutral. It's sort of shaping how you think, how you see the world, how you perceive. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an, an important way of sort of getting at a kind of substrate of, of thinking that is really, really valuable. Yeah. I, I guess it ties into all the stuff about the incarnation with Illich, right? And the idea that, I guess, separating these things that were whole is kind of a lot of the problems, uh, in what we're doing, I guess. And, and I, I guess reading about the medium is the message and how Christ is both the medium and the message. Um, it's kind of, that was kind of mind blowing to me to think about. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it, there's, there's definitely a lot to, you know, kind of pursue down that line of thought. And I think that, yes, the, the, the incarnation certainly, I mean, he has a, I didn't excerpt it, but he has a, a passage in the vineyard where he, he kind of talks explicitly about that. Um, and then I, I will, I will say though that, you know, Illich would say, I am a product of bookish culture, right? This is my milieu. And, and, and he does sort of talk about, he, he feels sort of he's doubly exiled in a sense because he recognizes he, you know, he's, he's exiled from the, the life world of Hugh, but he, he also be, begins to realize he's exiled from the emerging life world of, um, what we would today sort of call the digital age. You know, he, he maybe calls it the age of systems or, or refers to the age of computers. Um, and, um, and, and he sees both of these, you know, being very different from this moment in Western history, you know, the age of, of literacy or you know, the, the, the age of bookish reading or scholastic reading. Uh, bookish culture, he uses a phrase from George Steiner, who just passed away actually a couple months ago, um, to kind of characterize the age. Yeah. So, so I illustrate a kind of ambivalent relationship, um, to, to these understandings these different ways of, of sort of conceiving uh, what happens when we read and write. Uh, on Henry's note about the wholeness, um, so you were talking about Christ being the medium and the message, but just when you said wholeness, what came to mind was, um, so we typically read the Bible like in our devotional time, like small segments. Um, I, I took a theology class in undergrad, or a few, and they is the first time I had to read half of Genesis. Um, and <laughs> It was mind blowing because what I realized is it by reading half of the entire book, I got so much more out of it because everything connected. And then I started, it got caught on to me and I started wanting to read entire, like much larger portions of scripture at once because I realized this is meant to be taken as a whole and everything connects in it. Right. Right. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm also reminded there was like this trend, uh, there was like, something on kickstarter called biblioteca if anyone's heard of that or like reading bibles where it's like they do take out all the yeah. uh, i guess verse numbers and footnotes and all that um because it's like oh that that is what people used to do and i guess we use it like um like you said like a reference or maybe the database is a better metaphor yeah yeah right i and i'm also thinking like i'm really curious to see like what i guess other programmers would think on about this book because i was thinking about how you know, programming languages, right? They're also things that we write and we create. And programming is all about manipulating and control of like the text itself. And I work on what we call a compiler and compilers are just a fancy word for translator, right? We take some source text and we output some other code. And the, there's actually this thing we call an abstract syntax tree, which is like the intermediate form of the f written code that's like an easier way to manipulate. And I was like, wow, that's like abstraction on top of abstraction <laughs> to be able to like do whatever you want, essentially. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was too technical, but that's kind of what I was thinking. No, 
I, I follow it. I think they're a really important question. So I, you know, I was thinking even today, um, you know, about, about, um, those sorts of questions and then also where the right level of, of analysis is, whether it's at the level of code, which is a kind of, you know, linguistic construct or at the level of the interface, which is undergirded by the code. But I, I suspect that, you know, it's, it's, it's both in a sense. Um, yeah. Right. And, and like the code represents, say, like the web page, right? Like there's like the visual form of it. You can make it have different colors or texts and stuff like that. But then that's like what we manipulate. And like, do we want to expose that to the end user or not? Do you have to learn how to code in order to make a website? Like those kind of questions. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the kind of relationship then that that kind of way of, re- you know, that way of relating, what does it yield internally, right? How, how does that sort of shape our is there an analogous sort of development in our understanding of the self when we enter into this relationship with, with the mode yeah. expression? Like I, I noticed, um, like I went to this sort of like Christian, I guess, Eastern meditation kind of thing, you know, like repeating phrases and verses. Um, I think we were looking at Psalms and, you know, there's this, we were talking about like how God, should we ask God to search us, right? And then when I heard, when I was thinking of the word search, I don't know why, you know, normally you might think of like, uh, like maybe the prodigal son and the father searching for the son. But then for me, I was searching like Google or like control F or something. It's like, that's like a weird metaphor for me to like, yeah. think of, right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, good example. Um, fabulous questions and comments. And I, uh, I'm afraid I will per- myself will have to cut us off because I've got to get home, but um, thank you all. I hope this was valuable. We have one week left. Uh, we'll talk about, um, uh, <laughs> I'll try to kind of summarize the argument that is presented in Rivers North in the future uh, next week, uh, which is, again, a, a different kind of text altogether. Um, but anyway, thank you. Great discussion afterwards, and uh, have a wonderful day.